Hey, everybody, before we get into the interview today, I can't sit here and act like nothing has happened. A week and a day ago, George Floyd was murdered by four police officers and is sent my city, Minneapolis, where we're based, and so many other cities into chaos and with good reason. Police brutality against black people is, is nothing new. Thank God that woman took those images that now have set the world on fire so we can see with our own eyes what black people have been dealing with forever. Everybody here at Music on the Run loves Minneapolis, loves our black community, and we will figure out a way through this. Sometimes it's difficult to know exactly what to do. I've been asking. I think right now the, the best thing that I know how to do is listen, educate, and financially support our community and the rebuilding of our community. There's been so many minority-owned businesses that have been victims of arson and rioting. And now the problem is, is when these landlords rebuild these buildings, some of these businesses won't be able to come back because the rent's going to be higher. We need to put our money where our mouth is and help support the community, your community, my community. Directly here in Minneapolis, the family of George Floyd has a memorial fund on GoFundMe.com. Dollars are needed at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Black Lives Matter can use your funds. Communities United Against Police Brutality can use your funds. And so can the Minnesota Freedom Fund. These are just a few of the funds that you can support. Minneapolis, you are my hometown. I live here. I love you. We will be better. We have to be better. We have to be aware. Our eyes can no longer be shut. We know what we're dealing with here. So keep your eyes open. Look out for each other. And stand up for each other. Thanks for listening. Now check out this great interview with Mr. Dave King. Hey everybody, St. Paul here. Welcome to episode 14 of Music on the Run. I'm on a run, as a matter of fact. Seven miles today. But I wanted to introduce you to our next guest. Drummer extraordinaire, Mr. Dave King. He is next on Music on the Run. Hey everybody, St. Paul Peterson here, and welcome to episode 14 of Music on the Run. Again, you're in the Peterson family basement where a lot of notes have been played, rehearsed. We've had some incredible hangs down here in this basement, and it's fun to be broadcasting from here. My next guest is an incredible, incredible musician, a composer, drummer, pianist, comedian, a radio host, and a founding member of Happy Apple and The Bad Plus, who always is on the search for what we'll find out in this episode. Please welcome Dave King. 
Dave, how are you, man? Thanks for uh, taking the time to come on, man. Where are you right now? Uh, I'm in um, like a, the border of North Minneapolis and Robbinsdale. Um, kind of a new, I was in downtown St. Paul and then I got a, a new place in this area um, near the Victoria, Victory Memorial Parkway, that area. You know that? Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So, so a couple blocks from North Minneapolis. You and I have been trying to hang out for months. We have, absolutely. I've been trying to hang out with you ever since I saw you in Purple Rain. Well, that's 35 years ago, but who's counting? I tried, I tried then. It was not, it didn't work. <laughs> you were just young enough, a little bit younger than me, so I suppose we kind of... <laughs> like ships. I'm young. I, 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 you look younger than me. I am younger than you. That's the, that's the trade-off. Paul. I'm not sure about that. Hey, look, this is I'm gonna try your hairstyle next, by the way. That's gonna happen. <laughs> sooner than I want it, sooner than I want to, but I'm I'm okay with that. You look good, man. You look good. You, you so, look good too. You look good too. So tell me how uh uh oh by the way, you you and I, what a shame, you and me. You had a paper route for how many years? I had for eight years. Who who did you deliver? What paper? I delivered the Star Tribune. Minneapolis Star Tribune. Me too. And uh, my uh, my father. Uh, can I tell you the story real quick? I wish you would, because this that's this is the good stuff. Okay, this is the good stuff, and I'm glad this is a genius podcast because this is a really this is the only interesting stuff. You and I know that. Um, <laughs> the rest the is music, all fluff. The music stuff is like, what are we explaining here? I don't know. I don't know what we're doing. No, I don't know if you know what we're doing. I don't. Right, but um. I, my father was in the military, uh, and he uh, was born on a farm in North Dakota, uh, probably in that order. He was in the military, and then he was born on a farm. That's how abstract he is. But anyway, the point is, is that he was um, had this ethos of get up in the morning, you know, and what do, doesn't matter if we're not on a farm, you're going to get up in the morning and do something, work like I did, the chores and the blah blah blah. That was his right. thing. And so when we were, my older brother and I, I was six and he was seven and a half. And my dad was like, we're getting the paper out. You guys are going to get up on Saturday and Sunday morning at five in the morning and do the paper out. And then Monday through Friday, you're after school, you're going to deliver the Monday through Friday paper. So it was seven days a week. And I did it from age six till 14. Six? Six years old. How do you deliver paper? How do you do that? This is true. And so on the Sunday papers are really big and we'd have to make them. And then he, we would load the two parts, the components of the Sundays because they load the comics. You load the comics in and then he would drive and we would walk in the snow or anything. And my brother take one side of the street and I'd take the other side of the street. And, um, he would put the paper together and stack them in the back seat of the car. We would reload two or three at a time, how many you could carry. And then the older we got, we were able to carry more. Saturday paper was no big deal because it's thin. You just take a bunch yep. of them out of bag and just go through the snow. I was six years old doing that. That's a true story. That is unbelievable. I said, hey, I, I think uh, having a paper route is cool. I mean, I did it too. And, and I remember my mom and, you know, who my mom was, Jeannie Arlen Peterson, Imagine this great jazz, great jazz pianist. She'd probably gig until two in the morning. And then I got up. I'll never forget this. One time there was a blizzard 
and I had one of those yellow paper carts that yeah. you know were kind of remember those. Yeah. Okay, so we had a paper shack where we'd go get our papers, stuff our papers, yeah. put, put them in the cart, grab our bags. But this was back when we would get two feet of snow in a single uh, snowstorm. Yes. So this kid at five in the morning, the plows aren't out. I'm trying to uh, push this thing. So mom says, I got you, honey. So she would drive me after the gigs and I'd go deliver my papers. But I'm telling you, that made me a man. <laughs> what it made me do is it made me say, I'm never going to treat my children that way. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to work out of the womb. Oh, man. All it did was I got to live the fantasy of being one of those dads. It's like you can sleep in. You can go to church if you want. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> you were the opposite. I uh, I am the opposite in many ways, but one of them is I don't, I mean, I get what, what you mean. Like we, we had to do that and we had to work for it in that certain way. And I get the thing, your mom taking you after gigs. That's fantastic. My dad had a little bit of more of a military approach. <laughs> yeah, right. I hear you. He was a little bit like um, you'd be asleep and your bed would get kicked. So can you imagine, Paul, like this is why to this day, man, when I'm on tour and somebody, somebody is really trying to move the lobby call as early as like everybody's sweating the airport and I'm the one going, it's going to, dudes, this is a puddle jump from Germany to blah, blah, blah. This is nothing. You know, we're going from whatever to whatever. We don't yeah. need to sweat this so much. I, I'm still the last one out of my room. Like I'm, I'm yeah, I don't think, I don't keep people waiting like um, in a, in a, in a sort of negative selfish way, but I'm the one the night before saying I need 50, we can carve 15 more minutes here. Pushing the envelope in America. Yeah. Because I have this memory of like, I'm it's five in the morning and all of a sudden a giant person is kicked <laughs> side of my bed and said like, get up. Then that was literally what the words were. Get up, get up. So, so there was a, uh, Pastoral care there, I guess you'd call that pastoral care, right? <laughs> so when I hear the term tough love, I'm always like, no, nah, how about just love? How about that? Yeah, forget the tough. Omit tough. Yeah, I, I, I'm like, well, I'm just going to do the love part with my, with my kiddos. Everything seems to be just fine. I want to know what other uh, weird jobs you had before you were able to do this like you're doing it now. I mean, yeah. Well, um, let's again, you're, you're doing my dream podcast, man. You beat me to this, buddy. I really, I had this idea for a while. I was going to do this thing called know your improviser. And I was going to call like famous jazz guys that I sort of know and blah, 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 blah. Mostly right. from my generation because the older cats, you know, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to call up Billy Hart and ask him like, you know, Hey, Billy, so Billy. can you tell me what your favorite cookie is? You know, all these things. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I mean. Hey, look, that's what this podcast is about. And by the way, what is your favorite cookie? No. <laughs> um, uh, uh, before I became allergic to cinnamon, it was a snickerdoodle. How about that? I, like it. I, I will like say it. this, Paul, it's super fun to talk with you, man. You're such an incredible musician. I want to state that right away that you were such a legend in this area and still are. And like, I was a kid, like you said, I'm 10, I'm, I'm, I'm 49. I don't know how old you are, but you know, when you're 15, 14 years old and like, I was checking out, of course, all the funk scene, 
then also all the punk rock scene and the avant-garde jazz scene. So, you know, like I was into Eric Gravatt and everything. And then everybody knew who oh, you of course. were. You were like the, you were like the pop, like you were, you were like the pop prince, you know, like chosen one. And then the Peterson family, of course, is just in the jazz circles. It's just like the Marsalises of our area, as you, as you know. And um, I mean, as you know, that's how you guys are looked at. And, wow. um, you know, everything from me, you know, studying with Gravatt to knowing, you know, Eric Gravatt to, to knowing about the natural life stuff through that. Sure. Just the whole family and, and Bobby and everybody. And so it's just fun to get to chat with you finally like this because I've known, you know, you on and off for years, but you're just such a, you're such a you're, you're, you're such a badass and legendary musician. So get that out of the way. Wow. Well, okay. thank you. And that's the end of uh, Music on the Run podcast. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you later. <laughs> but anyway, and it is fun to it is it's, it is fun to go back and check out Purple Rain. And there you are. It's hilarious, man. I got questions. Don't blink, man. Don't blink. You'll miss my 30, 35 seconds that I'm still getting a check for. <laughs> I'm sure that I'm sure that I'm sure that you're bombarded every time you talk about how much you and Prince were a vibe on and off, I'm sure, over the years. But anyway, <laughs> my boy, oh, yeah. I'll tell you one fun Prince story that, with me and him. But Please. I'll tell you that in a minute. Please, but okay. Some of the jobs I had were, were, were the paper out, of course, and then post-paper out, and I have a fun story about that, is all the money from the paper out was taken and put into an account for my education later. So I never got to spend any of it either. And then the brutal part, Paul, is that my older brother who did it with me, he ended up, he was kind of a ne'er-do-well in the high school years. He ended up somehow hacking into my account and he took the money. <laughs> older brother. My older brother took all of the money that I made as a paper boy and he took it and bought drugs with it. Did he? Did he share? No. He bought drugs and sold drugs. <laughs> how's there's this? A, there's a book here, The Paper Route Drug Money. Yeah, how's this for some Freudian Dave King stuff for you, Matt? Woo. I mean, I've been wanting to use my name in the third person for a while, by the way. And I just, you can. Did you see it's that? Third person Dave King Day today. Yep. There we go. Why not, Paul? I've lost everything else. So I might as well just start referring to myself as the third person. I think you should. So it'll be make me so I feel like I don't, I didn't, this version of me didn't lose everything. <laughs> So, so, so he took the money and I went into, I was going to buy a car because I was going to move to, it, right out of high school. I, w I went to New York for a while. Hmm. I was going to try and check out the scene. I was only 18. I'm like, oh my God, you know, 18, I wasn't in music school. I didn't go to music college or anything. I didn't have the money for any of that. Right. And so I had my paper out money though. I'm like, I'm going to buy a car. So then it was like, then the money was gone. And I was just like, wait a minute, how did he do that? Like, he got like a bank book. He found a bank book. He did something. And so I was like, oh, man, my mom felt terrible. So I got this cheap car for, for my high school graduation, whatever. Anyway, in during high school, I also worked for worked at Orange Julius, man. If you, oh, I mean, that really? was a gig. Come on. Yeah, exactly. Talk about an employee discount. You know what I'm saying? You drank the store dry. I, I did. And and a little aside, a fun anecdote, if you will, is the is Orange Julius in the early days, Paul. Do you recall this? Do you, do you ever have an Orange Julius, man? Of course. Of course. In the early days, you could get a raw egg put in it. 
I don't remember that. Yeah, for like protein. So the protein blast in the 80s was a raw egg. Dang. Yeah, it's just like, was that some a little food violation? I have no idea. A salmonella with your orange juice. That out, man. <laughs> Tell you. So you would make the thing, and then you'd crack a raw egg in it and do the mixer. Oh, sure. Foam it all up. Foam it all up. There was clearly something in that powder that um, that uh, desalmonellaized or whatever you call it. Evidently. Yeah. I worked a ton of gigs, man. I cleaned the Sears Automotive Center on Saturdays and Sundays. Um, I used to clean the Target office buildings, and I would wear headphones and listen to, like, Cecil Taylor and – um, I really got into, you know, a lot of avant-garde music, clean it, sun raw. Mm. Think about how abstract that is, man. I'm walking around and like dumping, um, during high, in high school, dumping garbage cans from cubicles and yeah. ashtrays because people could smoke right. in their areas. Sure. And, thing. and so I'm dumping ashtrays. I got my headphones, my Walkman on tapes, cassettes of sun raw and, you know, late period Coltrane and, well, any Coltrane, but 60s on, and all this stuff, and I'm just cleaning office buildings, taking all that stuff in. That was my, uh, that was my basically my high school years. Woo! So you're listening to all this stuff. How, how does a kid who who grows up in Minneapolis, surrounded by Husker Du, Prince, Camp, Terry Lewis, Jimmy Jam, yep, uh, Replacements, uh, Natural Life, Eric Cravat. How does this shape you musically? It, it seems like you would be quite confused, actually. I, it's a great question, you know, and I, actually something I really, really, um, I really, am, I'm very proud to kind of be from this area because I think the, the, and that's why I moved back here. I lived in Los Angeles for many years after I lived, I tried out New York. I lived in Los Angeles for many years. And I moved back here and started playing right away with, I, uh, with some of my, some people that I, I consider to be highest level musicians, Anthony Cox and Bill Carruthers and people that's mm. why I met you guys. Right. And, and playing the old artist quarter, meeting Billy and knowing, because I moved really out of here when I was 18. So I didn't really know. Joe Police was my main teacher. Oh, he's great. He's fantastic. And he really Ooh. hit me to a lot of stuff. That's how I got to know Gravat and got to know the, the band Kaminari that they had in the 80s. Got with, it. With Dean Granross, who was yep. one of my great heroes. And I really gravitated towards those guys, Gravad and, 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 and um, but, but I really feel very fortunate to be someone that was able to seek the music out, you know, before the internet, before the end of LPs, before, you know, I'm still from that last period of where you went to the library to check out records. Right. And you really had to be hungry for this stuff. And so since I was so into it all, like so into the R&B scene, so into the, 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 the Husker do punk Minneapolis, the early soul asylum, all ages right. show, seeing bad brains at all ages show, seeing Sonny Chirac play the, the you know, uh, Ver, you know, like uh, Ronald Shannon Jackson playing seventh street entry. I mean, I was oh, there. Wow. I was that kid that was like an omnivore relationship with all of this. So while I was working on my straight ahead vibes with Joe Yep. Joe Police, fantastic, incredible big band player as well. Of course we know. And um, like, he really was like, okay, Dave, we're going to ground this stuff. All these influences coming. And then he said, you got to check out Gravat and all these things. So I was a Gravat disciple. And then it just led to me, um, you know, I was uh, always going to the Dakota, always going to the Walker, any all ages things I could get into. Um, and then the Dakota would let me in to see people. And, and my dad would sometimes take me to see people that were playing Bradford Marsalis. The Guthrie used to have a ton of shows, by the right. way. Remember that? Sure did. Yep. I, mean, I saw Wynton Marsalis 10 times in the did 80s. You? 
He was there all the time. Bramford, then Sonny Rollins. I got to see all these legends and then go to the Walker and see the avant-garde cats. So Bill Frizzell would come in with Joey right. Barron and Jerry Allen, the Throna Cloth, and Henry Threadgill. And so for me, it was all just the best music. It was just for me like, oh man, getting to know, you know, getting to be friends with Michael Bland and, and getting to see you guys play and getting to all these things. It was for me, I just took it all in. It was just like, I didn't see a hierarchy in the relationship of that music. I never saw like the funk thing as a, as a more like, just like a visceral groove thing. I saw it as a insanely sophisticated, which it is. And the mm. same thing with the punk rock thing where I saw it as very intelligent reaction to things. I thought I love the raw nature of it. And then I started to just to build those gaps between, you know, the jazz that I love from every era and the rawness of things and the humanity in that, all that music. And then the center of the groove of these things. And to me, it just became this omnivore uh, thing. And then when I moved out to LA, I was interested in just playing everything. So I wanted to be able to do studio work. I wanted to be able to play some jazz with people. I want and do it in a way where I could afford it. New York, I just couldn't deal with in 1989. It was like a freaking Abel Ferrara film still. You know what I mean? Yes. Like barrel <laughs> fires burning in the streets, you know? Right. I was just like, oh man, you know, I got to percolate. I got to like, I got to marinate a few more years before I deal with New York. You weren't, you weren't quite ready. No. I hear you. I, I, it. I, I know that one because I yeah. went there once upon a time and I was probably 19, 20 years old yep. from the Midwest, carrying a briefcase into Central Park. And people were like, yeah, I thought I was going to die. And I had to go back and check myself into the hotel and go, you going to dive unless you change, like you said, marinate a little bit more. Yeah. I, for me, it was like, you know, a lot of people would go out and they would be in school, but I didn't have that cocoon of a school. Right. So for me, it was more like, okay, well, how would I inject myself into anything? I'm 18. I'm not even of age. Right. Some, I, I, you know, I didn't have any real friends there at that point. So for me, it was more like just checking the temperature. I knew I wasn't going to stay. And mm. so it was like, okay, I'll go crash on the floor of some people's, you know, that they were in school. Excuse me. And then I went up to Boston and checked it out as well, even though I got accepted into Berkeley, but I couldn't afford it. Got it. And so it was that type of thing where I was just like, I can't afford any of this. I can't do it. But LA was like, well, maybe that's that idea where, you know, if you talk about being a professional musician in other <laughs> cities, mid-sized cities, you might know, man, it's like you come from a very heavy musical family, but when you don't come from a background that's like, there's some artists in the back. I mean, my grandmother was a ceramicist, so there was art in the family. Okay. But it was more like when you mention you're going to be a professional musician, it mystifies any structure. You know, they're just like, yeah. what do you mean? You're going to like play what, what, what hotels? And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm going to try and take this all the way, you know? And then it's like, what? I wanted to be involved with like a scene where if you talk about, you know, in LA, you could say anything to anyone at any time. And they could just go, yeah, of course. You know, you could say right. I astral projected this morning. And, and while I was going to, you know, golf, and then I'm going to, and then I was going to think about, you know, um, getting the uh, Carmen McRae gig after I astral project, you know, and, and, then, <laughs> and then the person goes, cool. Yeah, I'm into that, too. You know, it's like you. But felt- it takes that to be successful, though. Right. I mean, really, if you if if you don't have that kind of drive. Yes, I believe it's hard to succeed. And I, I look at you because this is like our first time to actually get to chat, but I've been watching you for years and years, man. And 
you are a hustler. You do so many different things. You're, you're, you have so many different influences that I hear. I had a ball, by the way, researching for this interview, going through and listening to the 25,000 bands you're in, just kind of go, what is different about this? What's the common thread through all this? But you are, uh, you're a go-getter, man, musically. And it looks like, uh, uh, just in your life, it's, if you want something, it's like, I'm going to work and I'm going to go get it. Is well, that true? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely not great at leisure time. <laughs> right. I was going to ask you, how long, is, uh, how, how long have you actually sat in a chair? How, what's the longest stretch of time that you've sat still? I'm told by everyone my whole life. I don't really do. Like I said, I don't, I don't, um, I don't do a lot of, um, just forced relaxation for me, for me, music, in fact, I identify even more now that we've all been sort of grounded or forcibly retired on some level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, without a retirement fund, that's the, other thing. <laughs> we'll I talk about that I, later. I knew I should have worked something out earlier. When I was <laughs> well, um, no, um, for me, it's just more like I recognize the healing nature of music and I recognize that the self healing nature of music. And for me, I've always felt that music, um, represented more than just a fun thing to do or, or something where it makes me feel good. I want others to feel good as well for me. And I, and I assume many people, um, I hope many people music, it be, provides a deeper salve, a soulful, um, healing. And so for me, I've always felt like there's a part of me that feels like, um, I want to be able to be a part of this process of healing myself and helping anyone else that's willing to accept it on any level um, by, by, by approaching everything with the sort of vigor that it demands. Like if it, like, like this, the music demands a real technical agenda. It also demands a soulful agenda. It demands an agenda of what your purpose is doing it. And for me, when I'm sitting still, it's almost like a shark. I, I sink if I sit still because I feel like every day is a chance for me to be able to discover something musically, something artistically, because I'm into the fine arts as well. I'm into painting and photography mm -hmm. and architecture. And, right. and I use these references a lot when I play and teach. And so during this time, especially, it's just heightened my need for these things. Um, and thank thank the Lord we have music and we have art and we have these things because this is the time where they go, where the arts stand up and go, you see what I'm saying? You know, yeah, right. Right. It stands up and says to the, to the general population, check it out how much we need this. Ooh. And for me, it's not just like, I need this to go out and make my living. For me, that's always the idea where if I feel like if I take care of the music, it will take care of me. And I've always said that to myself. Like, if I go in and I, de I work on these details and I work on my relationship with this thing and I make it pure as possible and I just go, go, go. For me, it's never been about like, I'm going to knock down every door. For me, it's just prepare to receive kind of thing. You know, that mm -hmm. sounds a little Eastern, but it's really true. It's like, I want to receive it. So I want to be in the position to receive it when the door opens, you know? Yeah. Well, let's talk about relationships. It's, I, you have an obvious relationship with your drum set. Would you call it that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 
you seem to be on a quest, man. I mean, when I've had the pleasure of coming and seeing you play live or doing my research online, there is a, seems to be a natural curiosity. It's either that or you're never satisfied. Is it, what would you say to that? Probably could, could be both. Okay. One thing maybe you've noticed, and I'm not saying like, maybe you've checked this out, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Simulated. you've noticed this, Paul. But um, <laughs> no, um, you're, you're obviously a very high-level musician, and I love hearing um, your take on things, and I think you're absolutely right. I, but I, the thing about me, Paul, is that I like, I like improvising. And, I, and when I say that, I mean, I really want to improvise. I don't want to show up and play riffs. And so I typically don't play drum riffs. And right. I want to, when I find myself laying into all the languages that I know and study and I go, oh, okay, well, I'll just, you know, I'll find that space, that safe space of all the stuff I've checked out and all the things I want. That's fine. But for me, um, I want to be able to be in a moment musically and be able to explore every aspect of what can take place and have the role of the drum set reversed with the piano and reversed with the bass and, and have a dialogue rather than the, the just the sort of like classic support role and right. then this person blows and this person blows and then we trade and then we're out or whatever. I've never wanted to be a part of um, the, the, the trope laden way of going about artwork. I want to try, sometimes I fail miserably, but I want to have drama in there. Like I want to put it out there where there's, you know, I use Jack DeJanette as a great example. I think it's someone who plays very dramatically. Like you could tell he's not just like playing all the stuff he knows he can pull off. He's actually using real drama. Like sometimes he's just like, you can hear it. It's like, it's just like going for something and it kind of clangs around back. Yeah. 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 Like wonderful. Because you know, he's not sitting there going, check this out that I worked out a million times. Or yeah. here's this gad riff that I worked out from my right. video. It's like, man, it's not interesting to me. It's not enough for me. I mean, I'm into it on the level of like, yeah, hell right. yes. Yeah, yeah. But for me, it's like, if I see somebody just playing recycled stuff that I've heard a million times by the person who invented it, mm. I'm just like, so you're, you're doing an impression of what you think is necessary for this. And when you're in an improvisational musical setting, it was one thing if you're doing a session and you're like, you've got a, 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 an agenda for the, for the leader, or you've got an, an agenda for the session you got to do, then I'm in all the way. You Those do, are the goalposts, right? Yeah, Those are the goalposts. You got to do a purdy thing, or you got to do a bottom thing, or you got to do a, you got to sit down and play a Shelly Mann style West Coast thing, or you got to, I get it. We can all right. sit there and reference all of our heroes all day long. Yep. But for me, I started to realize my heroes were always the risk takers. Paul Motion. Yep. The sort of postmodern thinking cats, okay? Like Dewey Redman. The Keith Jarrett American Quartet, Motion, of course, one of my great heroes. Yep. You know, Joey Barron, Dijonette, the second, second wave, Billy Hart, Al Foster, and in the rock zone, Stuart Copeland, Jim Keltner, Steve Jordan. These guys where you could tell when they had a moment to do a fill or something, it was completely idiosyncratic and personal. Yeah. yeah. Like anytime Steve Jordan plays a fill, no one plays that fill, even though it's just some s simple you know, but a bop, boom, bing. It's like, it's never sounds that, it's not that simple. There's right. something, it's like Chuck Berry. There's something else going on there. Originality, man. Exactly. And I want to be a part of that. I've always wanted to be a part of that tribe where when you sit down 
you, you're going to hear me. You're hopefully going to hear something you haven't heard before because I haven't necessarily heard it or dealt with it before. And that relationship of being willing to fail in the moment and being willing to have the thing be alive and not necessarily always getting nailed. Yeah. Right, right, right. It's like, man, then the epiphany happens when it's like, whoo, what was that? <laughs> yeah, right. You know? So you're you're living on on the edge. You you're living on the edge. <laughs> yeah, and I sing but, that every time. I can pump myself up by singing that line right there. Exactly. However, but it, it's talk about risk taking, mus- musical risk taking. Uh, is that the energy you thrive on? Uh, is that what makes you stand out? Do you think from other cats? Well, if I do stand out in any way, I, I think in my peers talking to me or whatever, if, if I stand out in any way humbly, it's that it's that probably is what it is. From any interviews I've done to to um, talks with my contemporaries to, to mm. talks with some of my older jazz heroes um, who who people who like Billy Hart has said to me many times, like, I've never heard anyone quite like you, man. You're, you're some other thing. And he goes, I can identify a lot of people, but I can't quite identify you. Right. What's interesting is I take that as the highest compliment. Of course. Where it's, where it's like, I know it's everyone's like, you can read it a couple different ways. Is he saying I'm some alien that he doesn't even understand whatever? Right. <laughs> and he's basically, is it a backhanded thing? No, in, in, in many ways. And, and cats from different camps have said this to me, where, of course, I go through massive amounts of self-doubt at times and massive amounts of, you know, I'm someone that's very like, I don't walk off the stage going like this, hell yeah. <laughs> Even if people are like, they've never done that in my life. You know, I've been like, well, man, we live to get to do that. I mean, I'm, right. you know, I'm a positive cat. I, I get off stage going, hell yeah. And I, I go, hell yeah, that was sucked. You know, I can say yeah. that to myself. Is there a little bit of self-hate sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I go deep into a zone of going, you know, um, you know, I, I got to find something here. I got to try and, you know, I want to keep this thing alive. I want to keep this, you know, and I've done this with your brother many times where when we played the Vanguard, um, you know, with my trio, with your brother, with your brother, Billy and Bill Carruthers, another mm-hmm. idiosyncratic genius from this area. Totally. Um, it's like we went in and I, I had the chance to play a Vanguard week of my own after playing there for years with the Bad Plus uh, a couple weeks a year for 15 years. We were they finally offered me my own week about seven years ago. Right. And I was like, you know, I could do the thing where you bring in the well-worn path or you bring in the outsider art cats. And that's what I did. And I was so proud of all of us that week, Billy, especially because there we were playing the Vanguard, repping this, the Twin Cities, we're playing the Vanguard. Twin Cities, baby. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And people were coming out and musicians were coming out to check out these two cats, Bill Carruthers, which people know in the sort of cultish way in New York. Yep. And Billy Peterson in this way of like, Billy's got his guys that know him. And then there's other generations of bass players who've never seen him before. Right. Guys from my generation, like Chris Lightcap and, and, and um, Reed from the Bad Plus and all these guys coming down. And there we were, man, not saying a word about what we were going to play, not talking about it, playing shit we've never played before. Looks like looking at each other going like, okay, we're going to play like someone in love and somebody just starts and there's no, it's not just the normal impressionistic standards situation. It was real risk taking. And to be able to have those risk takers with me in the same way, your brother, especially just kind of going, yeah, of course, I will tell you an incredible story, man, right now. Can, I, can I be tantric here and just Please. keep going about your brother? He will love hearing this. 
We're going to break away for a second here so I can tell you about a couple really important items. Number one, we have a brand new highlights page on YouTube. We want you to check it out. It's especially made by our intern, Jake Miller, for people who don't have quite enough time to sit through the entire video podcast. It's a great way to catch up on some great tidbits of information from all of our guests. You're going to have to search for it, I'm afraid, just simply because we need more subscribers on there in order for us to get a custom URL. But it's Music on the Run Highlights. You know what else is on there, you guys? A brand new feature that we've been doing strictly on Fridays. It's called Funk Friday. Got to have a little funk for your weekend. We feature great musicians, some former guests, some future guests, and it's a little one to two minute vignette of us jamming and funking out. And it's a great way to kick off your weekend. It's called Funk Fridays, every Friday. Check it out. It's on the Music on the Run Highlights Reel. And of course, you'll find it on Facebook and Instagram as well. All right, let's get back to the interview. He will love hearing this. Um, we're halfway through the week. And like I said, we're calling stuff and we could just call really straight stuff too, like body and soul. And all of a sudden it's like a drone. Crothers is doing this drone and I've got like gong tones out and it's just like a minute and a half long drone version of body. So, I mean, stuff was happening all week like this because we were yeah. just like calling it or somebody launches into something. And, you know, Carruthers, he will start playing some early Americana thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I'm at the Vanguard and he's playing strike up the band. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's Carruthers for you. Oh, you can imagine how mystified some of the audience. I mean, just like in a, in a beautiful way though, in the most oh, beautiful yeah. way of just gangster improvising. Oh yeah. Okay? And your brother is there again, just like ears, maniacal ears, you know, Billy Peterson. And he's just, he's coming from that Peacock, LaFaro, Hmm. really a, elastic school, which a lot of cats don't do anymore. Right. You know? So he's in there, this from another generation. I loved it. I was like, at one minute he can play the most rational thing. And the next minute he sounds like Sun Ra playing a standard. Right. He's just over there. I'd be playing these things. I'm just like, so, so we're playing something. I can't remember what it was, Paul, but like I get done, we get done with the set. And I'm talking to Carruthers, you know, he's sitting there, there, what, what? You know, doing his, like, the penguin from Batman. <laughs> they go, like, yeah, well, whatever. Yeah, mark, mark, mark. And I'm like, okay, well, what about, um, <laughs> you know, just like that really sharp tones. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm like, I said to him, I said, man, I can't remember the tune. I go, but I said, you know, we were playing um, blah, blah, blah. I said, Billy was playing so much incredible stuff, but it was like he lay, lays out for this long time and then he comes in and it's just sort of like really alien like concepts. Right. The Crothers is sitting there looking at me and listening and I go, man, does he, does he actually know every one of these tunes we've been playing? And Crothers looks totally deadpan serious at me. He was dead serious. And he goes, no. That's all I said. No, he doesn't know that. And it was so genius. I was like, man, we're saying to each other on stage, do you know, you want to play blah, blah, blah. And Billy's just like, yeah, of course. <laughs> and there's like yeah. a couple of really obscure things. And you can see him, his ears are just so huge. He's just over there reconceptualizing the thing. 
laying out, jumping in whenever. And of course, Carruthers isn't leaving any roadmaps half the time. You know what I mean? It's of course not. not. Carruthers is like giving you a ton of like, oh yeah, man, here's my Ivesy and chromatic harmony version of let's strike up the band. And, and, you know, can't you follow that? You know, that kind of thing. And it's like, right. and it's like Billy, and he just looked at me, he goes, no, he doesn't know that. And it was, it just hit me like, who is going into the Vanguard and like you're playing stuff that the whole band doesn't even know. And you're just going for it. And I was just like, yep, this was the correct thing. This was the correct crew, real risk taking. No one is relying on tropes. You know, no one's relying on comfortable spaces that they know they can pull off. Right. And it became a real like epicenter for me of like, you know what, that's what I wanted to, to try and display. Some sets were not good. Some yeah. sets were profound, you know? Right. And it was like, some sets were like, whoa, some people were coming back and here in one set and coming back two days later going, man, what is this band, you know? Right. And I felt really proud of that. That's why I wanted to bring that up. It was just like, well, you know what? Sometimes we're really failing, <clears throat> but at least in the right situation. And by the way, I don't do this every situation, of course. If I'm playing in some straight thing, or if I'm doing whatever, the Bad Plus has this massive agenda technically where it's minimalism, mm -hmm. swing, blues, grids, odd time, chromatic mm. harmony, rubato. You got to have a large toolbox to deal with that. But it was just more like being able to just be in the moment, really be in the moment and really try to make something new happen all the time. Um, that's kind of my space I like to be in with improvisational texts. That's basically what I'm saying. You know, we call Billy, my brother, the planet Willard because yeah. of everything you just said. Yeah. Because he's just, yes yes to everything he's totally. a risk, musical risk taker totally. he's also super vulnerable as well exactly you know there there is a relationship between risk and vulnerability i believe especially, especially in, in that kind of music and here's the other thing i noticed about you and, and tell me if, if you feel the same way i really get the impression that you don't give a shit about what anybody else thinks you and i mean that as a compliment meaning you are able to get out of your own way and play the music that moves you in that moment and and i notice you almost like and, and i'm not surprised to hear that you will enjoy the fine arts because when you play the drums man you're you're painting I mean, I'm, I'm seeing different strokes. You pick up a, a, some weird toy and I'm like, what the hell color is that? And it's like, so you be putting different stuff on this canvas that I've never heard before. And I've heard a lot of music, but it's, um, it really feels like you can get out of your own way. Is that something that you can do automatically or is that something you got to work at? Well, like I said, you know, I mean, early on in my playing, I sounded a lot like my heroes or whatever. I, 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 in fact, there's recordings of me in my late teens, early 20s, and I think I really sound, it's like, a, it's, it's really strong. It's really like, and then I went into a period of needing to find something original in myself. I was always attracted to the more original idiosyncratic players, Al Foster, all these people that you, when you hear them, there's like there's something up there that's different, you know, and Billy Hart, people like that. And also I wanted to be rooted in, in a historical perspective and a technical perspective. And the same thing with playing grooves or playing anything. When I went out to LA, I was playing studio stuff, right. a lot of songwriting demos with people, you know, playing a lot of avant-garde music, doing whatever. And then the same when I moved back here, I wanted to be able to kind of like attract the right kind of risk taker improvisers. And in a way for me, it's, it's less about a, 
a, an aggressive, I don't give a, a damn. Yeah, right. For me, it's much more like if I'm if I'm overloaded with the this sort of wanton need to please and all these other things or want to right. get over yep. and get house and all of these things we know anyone can really do if they put their attention on that. For me, it feels less like an artwork in that way. It feels yeah. more like I'm, I'm doing a thing to make sure that I'm get everybody in. For me, it's always been more interesting to know that vulnerability, like you said, and your intent, if you can, if you can, if you combine vulnerability of risk-taking and being a vulnerable person with the intent of just, listen, I like this stuff and you're going to like it too. No matter how out it is, and Bad Plus has this ethos, we like this, you're going to like it too. We like Ornette Coleman, we think you will too. doesn't matter if you've checked out all the Ornette Coleman, doesn't matter if you're just an indie rock kid or a punk kid or you're a jazz guy or you whatever. Mm. We like this, we think you're going to like it too. The intent is to not dumb it down, never water it down, make it weirder, make it more original, have it jumping off from all these different corners of your life experience, but never have the impetus be, uh, I want to get over with everybody. And that's why the stuff I even say on the microphone is really surreal because the thing is, is that the whole thing to me should be this sort of surrealist cabaret. It's like you come to see a show and people are really improvising. And when you're talking to an audience, I'm not going, hey, everybody, you know, thanks a lot for coming down. And we've got my, uh, this is my mic spiel and everything. For me, it's like, this is our space of improvising. And this is right. not a safe space. And it's not a safe space to listen to either. And some of it might not work. So I'm not going to sit on stage and go like, um, yeah, everybody, we're just going to nail it pro style tonight. It's like, for me, it's much more right. interesting to be someone who goes, here, we're going to go for it. And it's a gift to get to go for it. So every moment I'm up there, when I get off stage, you know, Billy will tell you this, Carruthers, anyway. Mm -hmm. And whether or not you want to trust it or not, I'm like, hell yeah, victory. Victory is ours. It doesn't matter if half the time, you know, there's nothing I hate more than when somebody you're playing music walks off stage and they're like, oh, I couldn't find it tonight. Uh, I yeah, couldn't. Yeah. Man, you know what, man? So what if you couldn't find it tonight? We got to do this tonight. Right. It's all about attitude, isn't it, man? So your approach and your attitude. Absolutely. It's like, it's like, yeah, I have off nights. I have off nights all the time. And, you know, I might deal with those myself, but I'm not going to crowd the room and all my fellow musicians or the fans by saying like, if a fan comes up to me and they're just like, man, that was really something you moved me. And let's say I feel like crap about it. Right. You think I'm going to go like the false humility road or like, oh no, man, we suck tonight. Or I'm going to do the, you know, like the, I'm not going to ruin their experience. You know, Craig Tabor right. told me that once when I was feeling really bad. Right. So we did. And he goes, man, we moved some one person in that room tonight. We changed their life tonight. There's nothing wrong with saying that because we were that kid in the room or we were that person in the room watching somebody have an off night and we were blown away. Right. Right. So if you're going to sit there and like be a narcissist about it and be like, oh man, you know, it can only be good if I thought it was good. You know, I hate that. Well, that's a kid. I think a lot of that is a learned behavior though. Yeah. I think you need to learn how to allow yourself to suck and not take away from someone else's experience it's natural for us to i think go 
uh, and be in the dumps about it. But you you got to learn how to change the attitude once again and 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 allow it to be what it is. Exactly. I'm going to plug my computer in, Paul. Two seconds. Okay. And while we have this break in the action here, don't forget about Dave King and his wonderful series. No. All right. So you know what I'm saying? Let me see if it's working. You're saying exactly what I mean when it comes to, um, you know, like, it's, I'm not talking about being, by the way, some 19-year-old who's hanging out with the older cats and you're going like, hell yeah, we can do it. You know what I mean? It's, it's like you, you realize when to say it and when not to, when to shut up and when not to. And if you're, but I'm saying, you know, if you're in a group of peers and you're working and you're, and you, and you're, you know, your, your focus is you really want to try and create something that has risk that's pure, that has some sort of thing. We, none of us can be pure all the time. We got to have some other agenda every now and again. And I'm not claiming yeah. that there's immense the hmm. total purity. But what I'm saying is if you've got an agenda where you're going to try and make something happen that's off the grid, that's off the, you know, that's, that's off the, the well-worn path. And sometimes we retreat to simplicity. We, we retreat to the things we know. I do it too. That's an important part of improvising. But, but the fact is, is that if you can't just allow that that experience has to be let out into the world and you have to just let it go and you can't torture yourself over let it. Let it go. Yeah, you have to let it go and you can't torture yourself over it too much. And that's a really important part of the process for me is, is over the years getting to learn to just let it go more and more and more and to be able to be like, you know what, my intent is to go for it tonight and sometimes I'm going to get there. And I surprise myself sometimes and yeah. I'm surprised by the musicians that I play with. And I'm inspired by them. And, and it doesn't matter if I'm doing hyper complicated music like the stuff I do with Craig Taborn or Happy Apple with the Bad Plus or these things mm-hmm. with Julian Lodge now or yeah, yeah. Josh Redman or whoever, Bill Frizzell, all these people that I've gotten a chance to play with and tour with and all these things where you're dealing with multiple texts. I mean, the Bad Plus playing Stravinsky. Come on, man. There's not room when you're playing Ligeti and Milton Babbitt pieces. Right. Sorry, cats. I went for some new stuff tonight. <laughs> well, Fired I mean, comes to mind. Time and a place to do it. Right. You know I mean? But for me, when I have that opportunity, I'd rather hang it out there than to play it safe. And that's it. You know, that's that's where it all comes from. And well, sometimes, look, it works, sometimes it doesn't. Let's talk about your creative outlets because you've got so many of these. And in fact, before we get into the individuality of it, how do you juggle all the different things you've got going on at the same time? Are you good at that? I'm not great at it. In fact, I'm, I'm a, also a very devoted dad. My kids are now 19 and 15, but I had set place, set rules when my stuff started to really um, pop off more internationally in the sure. early 2000s, um, kind of going from a more indie notori- notoriety um, in the late 90s with Happy Apple into Happy Apple and the Bad Plus, both kind of getting record deals mm-hmm. in New York a lot, working with different people. And then over the course of the first several years, I was I would turn down basically anything outside those groups. Mm. I would have to do a few things here and there from some, you know, some upper echelon jazz people where I didn't want to take anything away, including all rock people as well. I got offered the Jeff Beck tour once in 2001 when I played with him in the early 2000s a bit. Wow. Stuff would come around like that and I would say, okay, well, you know, um, I, I'm not going to take away my, I'm an original band guy. I'm an original musician guy. I'm a composer. I'm not going to, as much as I want to play with some other people that I would get offered um, things, I, I, I didn't feel like I could take away because I wanted to be able to be home when I wasn't doing that. Was that, that was, is that a difficult decision for you personally to turn down someone like Jeff Beck? 
I'd have a problem with. I'd be like, ah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Ah! In fact, the last one was three three years ago. Robert Plant contacted uh, oh. me about doing stuff, and that was one where I was like, oh my lord. Yeah. And um, yeah, he he came to see the Bad Plus, and we had a you know he came to see me again with Julian Lodge. And you said no. Oh, I just said, I just can't, you know, his yeah. family, and they were just like, and I just said, you know, right now I can't block the certain, you know, time from, you know, um, that I have set these tours and I just can't do it. And the thing is, is that then when I'm home, I wanted to be with my children. And so I would put these parameters on like two weeks and then I have to have two weeks off. So it became normal. It was very normal for them. It was like, when I was home, I was hundred percent focused with them off the road doing that. And then my groups like Happy Apple would go out to Europe or do a Bad Plus States tour back home, um, doing these things. And then uh, okay. and some of the sideband stuff that I would do that I really was really attached to, Craig Tabor and Chris Speed, Tim Byrne. Yep. Some of these guys, I there were some like Tim being one of my heroes growing up and then like my peers like Craig and Chris and now playing with Julian and, and Josh Redman. These types of things were, because I actually toured with Dewey Redman in the early 2000s. So I was like, Wow. Playing with his dad and then one of my great years. And then it was like, I only got to do a little bit of that, by the way, but it was like, I'm like, oh, I'm out with Josh now doing this. It was fun to be the generations of the Redmonds there. But the point is, is it was like, I would curate the things I felt like I could do and also keep my children connection. Like I wasn't just a ghost. I was with them all the time. They would come on the road. My kids have spent years on the road touring with me, having a blast, like coming out and do whatever. So for them, it was normal. But that's how I juggled it. And lately, it, it, before the before the pandemic, this last year and a half, I was trying to get extra money together for my daughter's college. Right. I lost a bunch of money during the um, housing crisis of 2008. I actually ended up having to sell my house for way less than I mm. and invested in it. And so I was like kind of against the ropes as far as getting money for my daughter's right. school. So I was making it up by taking stuff. And I was going around the climate, out with Josh Redman, out with um, Bad Plus, out with... Um, um, Taborn out with uh, Chris Speed, out with you know who had, Broken Shadows with with with, with uh, Tim Byrne, doing sessions, doing doing records whenever I could. It just became a thing where I got the last year and a half before this, I was actually working. I mean, knock on wood, it'll come back, but I was actually pushing it too hard. It was like it. I was making up. My children were older. My daughter was already in college. My son's fifteen. It was like, you mind if I go out for three weeks? And he'd say, yeah. oh, yeah, yes. And, and I would fly him to New York or something if I was there for a week. It's just the balance is difficult for me in general to be organized enough to be able to pull this off. I'm thankful to get to be able to do any of it. And hopefully of it'll come back. Of course. But, in the, but, in the, but, but for me, it's always been a struggle to, you know, always hold my kids there and my original projects first and everything else that I want to do, I try and see. I don't want to make it sound like, by the way, Robert Plant was making a, an official offer. It was more like he was testing the thing. But I want to make it clear that if I wanted to really go, listen, Robert Plant, I'm coming after that gig. Right. Who knows? I could probably. Right. Jeff Beck was an absolute like, yes. And then I've, I've had Dave Douglas, other people ask me for projects over the years. I could start naming people and looking like whatever. But it's like, for me, it's always been like my own bands first, my family first, my own bands. And then from there, I'll see what I can do. And thankfully, I've been asked by some nice people to do stuff. But in the meantime, I'm just trying to juggle it and be a human being, which is difficult. Here's what's so important to this particular podcast, because it's called Music on the Run. And it, what you were just explaining about your 
family and the importance of your kids and how you show up for them is what the not only the musical information we're trying to pass on, but the how to survive and thrive with your family while you're on the road. And and a lot of people up and coming need to hear that it can be done. Yeah. A lot of people don't know how to organize that. Yeah. And a lot of people have different methods on how to do that. You say you're two weeks on, two weeks at home, two weeks on, or at least while they were growing up until this last spurt. Yeah. Or a week, um, whatever it's less. Hopefully. Well, yeah, but you, you make it a priority is what you is what I'm hearing from you. It was, and in fact, I had you know early on uh, stated that that I'm not going to do. My limit was two and a half weeks because sometimes going to Europe you'd have to do. And I would say it, my limit is 17 days, um, and then I need the same on the back end. And it would become where we would sacrifice a certain amounts of um, a larger paying festival hits or whatever. I just held true to it, and I had everybody around me support it. Like the Bad Plus members who grew up together. Happy Apple members who grew up together. So everybody kind of understood. Right. Since I was the first to have children or, or first whatever. And I had a very, very, very supportive, um, had, a, but she and I are still close, but my ex, um, yep. the mother of my children, um, the very, very supportive um, backdrop of like, okay, we knew this was going to be with us. She wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. We knew we were going to be able to fly the kids and come meet me places. Because even in those two weeks, they would come out a lot of the time. So my children got the benefit of traveling you could see that they've traveled the world in the way that they are. They've seen the part of the world. They've seen a lot of America. It, it, it became a thing where I felt it was valuable to them. And since they knew no different, they didn't know that like, Oh, where'd daddy go? You know, of course it was difficult when there'd be a birthday that I would miss or right. I feel terrible. And we would talk every day, every day on the phone. I would make sure that I speak with them multiple times, ask about school Ask, get on the camera when we could in the early days of the camera you'd attach to the, the key. Oh, boy, do I remember that. I know that as being a dad as well. You know it takes dedication. But I wanted this. This wasn't based on, like, my guilt of whatever. I needed to be there with them. I sure. Them. Emotionally. I, I needed them more, you know, hopefully as much as, I mean, hopefully they needed me as much as I needed mm -hmm. them because I needed them and still do. Of course. So for me, it was never about like, oh, you know, I got to be off the road or these sort of cynical relationships that people have sometimes with their whatever. I, the only way I could pull this off is having the support mm -hmm. and, um, and still do have that support. And that's the gift that I give back is being able to be present when I'm there, um, be able to aff afford the, the, giving them the food that they need to eat, giving them the shelter, giving them the education, making sure they're taken care of. And for me, that was what it needed to be always, you know, just I had to be connected to that and could never let it go. I think that shows up in your art, though, too. I appreciate it, man. It doesn't. I mean, I can I can tell you I can tell what kind of guy you are by the way you approach your art. And it is art. What you do with the drums is. Yeah, you can bang, you can do whatever, but the way you paint uh, behind that drum set is a, a sight to see. I wanted to, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit more about your road routine. So, okay. if you're out and about, I'd love to know what a normal day looks like for you. Sure, and then I'm unfortunately going to have to close it down after this because yep. two, and I have to start teaching again because I'm teaching. I totally got it. In fact, I'll, can I plug my teaching on your podcast? Would you please? www.drums.study 
is my teaching link. You can go there and book a hour or half hour. I'm getting lessons from all over the world. It's been wonderful. So thanks for the support on that. My daily routine on the road, if it would be the bad plus, would simply be wherever we are, we're going to get to the next place. I try to stay in shape as much as I can. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Get into the gym whenever you can because it's so good for your brain. And it's hard, as you know, to get up and get going if you only mm-hmm. got 20 minutes or a half hour and get up that much earlier and hit it. Um, I try to eat healthy as well. Um, I, in my early years of touring, I was putting on a little bit of weight because I was a drummer and like you eat dinner, then you play. And then at the end of the, the show, you're starving. Getting right, right. Able to go to bed hungry. I mean, that's something when you play the drums, as you know, Paul, like yep. you eat dinner and then you play a 90 minute set and then it's like, good night, you know, <laughs> and then you're right. room starving, you know? And I just started to get used to the idea of taking care of myself again. And this is 10 years ago or so when I started to really get back into getting in shape again and being able to um, take care of myself that way and realize if I want to play the long game of live music, you gotta, you got to stay in there the long game. you got to have a focus as far as taking care of your body and your brain and, and being stay connected emotionally. And, and so I make it a focus to try to get as much sleep as I can, even though it's very difficult. You know, fatigue is oh, it yeah. on the road. And then be very conscious about taking care of myself, eating, not uh, taking it too out, um, and... Um, uh, and just uh, stay connected to the people that you love. And then it feeds that sort of cyclical engine of just, that's why you're out there doing it. Make sure you're taking care of the artwork and not feeling, you know, you're keeping your decisions in a space where it makes you feel like you're doing something important on some level. That's what I try to do out there. Dave, thanks so much for your time. What a blast to get to know you. And before you go, I got to show you this, man. Can you see the signature on this? Yes. That's Elvin. Oh my gosh. That's so good. I have my Elvin. Uh, I have my Elvin uh, autograph about seventeen feet away from me right now on the wall. Do you? Ah, you and me. I'm telling you, I can't wait to hang with you in person. Oh man, and- Paul, we gotta hang. In fact, I'm gonna show you my. You got your Elvin one there, just for the fun of it. I'm gonna hold mine up. Okay. Uh, old. It's like old. Um. Yep. It's kind of glary in this picture here, or this light. That's Elvin Jones's. Oh, here's Paul. Then I gotta teach this lesson. Oh, yeah. Can you see it with the, the, the glare? Shoot. I got it. Hold it right there. That's perfect. And we both are holding it up. We're, oh, that's so great. That's at the Dakota, right? Dakota when I was a kid. Yep. Wow. Dave King, I love you, brother. And I you, please go to um, Rational Funk. And, and I mean, I, we didn't even get to talk about your. Yeah, Rational health. Funk's up there. Go to the uh, uh, ra- rationalfunk.tv. Okay, man. Thank you, man. We're going to hang soon, I hope, buddy. We shall. Thanks so much. And that's it for this episode of Music on the Run, episode 14 already. Thank you so much to Dave King for coming along on the ride on Music on the Run. We will see you in two weeks. Until then, please stay safe, stay healthy, and we love you. Music on the Run was hosted by yours truly, St. Paul Peterson. Edited and produced by my buddy, Davide Razo. Video editing by Ivan Sebastianov. And a very special thanks to the people who financially support this podcast. And remember, drummers are people too. <laughs>